Welcome to another edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast, the Thinking Spatially podcast series where we think spatially across space and across time about key issues on our planet. Greetings all, Joseph Kursky here with you to talk about George Perkins Marsh, Humans as Change Agents. George Perkins Marsh, Humans as Change Agents. 100 years before the birth of the environmental movement, George Perkins Marsh, 1801 to 1882, wrote about how ecological systems work and the importance of the conservation of natural resources. Since the publication of his book, Man and Nature, 1864, revised 10 years later as The Earth as Modified by Human Action, Marsh identified the enormous impact that humans have on the environment, influencing ecologists around the world to the present day. Marsh exhibited an almost compulsive need to acquire facts and read so much text, including encyclopedias, that by age five his eyesight had become poor. He was consequently restricted from most reading for the next four years. He returned and turned to the outdoors and, growing up in Vermont, had ample opportunity to explore. He was surrounded by and developed an affinity with the outdoors, an aesthetic interest and a scientific interest, along with an awareness of how land use practices influence the natural environment. He commented that Quote, the bubbling brook, the trees, the flowers, the wild animals were to me persons, not things, end quote. And, quote, few of us could make as good a claim to personality as a respectable oak tree, end quote. I love that. Around his childhood home, decades of deforestation had already occurred. One day, when not quite five, his Charles... Charles Marsh, his father, a U.S. senator named for little George the forest species... He explained how rain and snowmelt gathered and ran down the Vermont hills in the definition of a watershed. Decades later, George Marsh wrote that, quote, he never forgot that word, nor any part of my father's talk that day, end quote. He was shocked by the squandering of the forest. Years later, he would say in his speech, quote, every middle-aged man who revisits his birthplace looks upon another landscape than that which formed the theater of his youthful toils and pleasures, The bald and barren hills, the dry beds, the ravines furrowed, seem sad substitutes for the pleasant groves and brooks and broad meadows of his ancient paternal domain. Marsh knew law, sheep raising, railroads, irrigation, and engineering, designing the Washington Monument. Marsh served in the U.S. Congress, opposing the annexation of Texas as a slave state and opposing the Mexican War as, quote, too violent of a way to annex territory, end quote. But the more revolutionary legacy of Marsh Marsh in Congress was his involvement in organizing the Smithsonian Institute. He not only believed in it professionally, but personally. At a time in his life when he was in debt, he sold his print collection, which included Durer and Rembrandt engravings, to to the Smithsonian at less than cost. Lowenthal contended, Quote, the Smithsonian story illustrates the kind of role that Marsh was to play again and again. He was not a great statesman. He made no original discoveries. But in the borderlands linking science and the public wheel, Marsh made lasting contributions. He applied science to life, not with the disinterested precision of an engineer, but with the aims and methods of a humanist. The Smithsonian, its aims, its activities, its personnel, was in large measure the result of Marsh's efforts as an impresario of ideas, end quote. 
After his later appointments as minister to Turkey and Italy, Marsh's proficiency in 20 languages helped distinguish him as an effective di diplomat. Marsh conducted fieldwork as a geographer, gathering data about languages, weather, plants, and animals, sending many specimens to this new Smithsonian institution. Man and Nature was written while Marsh was in his 60s, but it represented a lifetime of his observations of the natural world. He observed that when humans cultivate the land and exploit natural resources without regard to management and replenishment, the land is altered and ultimately destroyed. He supported his thesis beginning with the fall of Rome, tying history to geography. His extensive travels and keen eye for observation, both of which would become admirable traits for geographers during the coming century, enabled him to connect things that others could not. He linked the effects of similar processes occurring in different places around the world, such as deforestation in Vermont and shrub clearing around the Mediterranean Sea. He evaluated the relationship between animals and plants, water, forests, deserts, earthquakes, and local people's land use practices. Brooks wrote, quote, It was the first book to consider man as a geological force, a force upsetting what we know today as the balance of nature, end quote. Marsh pointed out not only the destructive nature that humans had over the environment, but also that they had the capability to restore and be constructive constructive. In so doing, he called for active, constructive rehabilitation of damaged landscapes that was truly revolutionary, anticipating today's restoration ecology movement. This played a role in the creation of New York's Adirondack Park, in Arbor Day, the tree planting movement, and the creation of the U.S. National Forest System in 1891. In fact, Pinchot, the first head of the U.S. Forest Service, considered man and nature epic-making. To Marsh, trees had value not only as a crop, but also as a reservoir for water, as a protector of the soil, to help prevent floods, and even to help mitigate adverse weather. Marsh was the first who took the local scale to the global, which was revolutionary not only for geography, but for society. Lowenthal stated, quote, Anyone with a hoe or an axe knows what he is doing, but before Marsh, no one had ever seen the total effects of all axes and hoes. Once Marsh made this general observation, the conclusion was, for him, inescapable. Man depends on soil, water, plants, and animals, but in securing his livelihood, he may unwittingly destroy the fabric of nature that supports him. Therefore, said Marsh, men must learn to understand their environment and how they affect it, and they must take action, individual and collective, to restore and maintain a more viable milieu." End quote. He touched on issues critical today deforestation, desertification, sustainability, aquatic systems, species extinction, just to name a few. The questions surrounding human existence after Marsh became, what must, what must we do to live within the boundaries established by nature's harmonies? Responsibility for human action, while not becoming the mindset of the general public overnight, began to take root later in the environmental movement. Before Marsh, many American and European writers welcomed the mark that modern humans were making on the natural world. Deforestation, building canals, draining wetlands. These were signs of progress. Marsh, however, warned that humans were actually spoiling the landscape. He saw nature being in balance. He contrasted the ancient 
prosperity of the well-forested Roman Empire with the deforested, devastated slopes and the human poverty he had seen adjacent to the Mediterranean in his time. Nash noted that Marsh stood practically alone among his contemporaries in bringing a rudimentary scientific analysis to man-land relations. It was clear to Marsh that wilderness was characterized by the balance that developed land usually lacked. Humans must become conservers and restorers of natural resources if the human and natural environments were not to worsen. Humans were a part of nature, not above it. Marsh called for action without any fanfare, but about any large-scale operations that interfered with the natural world, such as canal building. He called for caution about that. A realist, he acknowledged the benefits that the Suez Canal, for example, had brought, but advocating the gathering of as much relevant data as possible before making decisions. Quote, we are never justified in assuming a force to be insignificant because its measure is unknown, or even because no physical effect can now be traced to it as its origin, end quote. Marsh overcame personal difficulties, including dishonest businessmen and the death of his first wife and one of his sons, eventually triumphing, but respected more so after his death. Even the most well-known geographers of his time, Gaillot and Ritter, maintained that the physical aspects of the earth were entirely the result of natural phenomena, mountains, rivers, and oceans. No one had ever turned to the study of the earth as the home of humankind, as Marsh did. Marsh was the first to describe the interdependence of environmental and social relationships. In so doing, he, he had an enormous impact on geography, even though the impact would take a full century to fully flourish. Humans as change agents is a familiar phrase today, but in the 1800s it was revolutionary, and this revolutionary idea came from Marsh. Thanks for joining me, Joseph Kursky, on this edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast, where we highlighted George Perkins Marsh, Humans as Change Agents. Humans as Change Agents. Thanks for listening.